I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Dr. Andrew Rosen is a psychologist in Palm Beach County who specializes in anxiety disorders. Thank you very much for being with us. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. We read that between 4 and 9% of the population suffer from a generalized anxiety disorder. It seems rather high that one out of almost every 11 people suffer some terrible anxiety. Is that a fair number? Well, I would say from my perception uh, and clinical experience, it's probably an underestimate of the percentage of people who suffer from anxiety in one form or another. I think uh, excessive worry, fear, and the anxiety that it creates causes people to limit their lives, control the amount of pleasure that they have in life. It causes people to diminish their goal-seeking behavior, whether it be career or relationships or travel or just overall pleasure in life. So I would say even though people don't necessarily get diagnosed, I'd say that that's an underestimate of the people who suffer. Well, that brings up an interesting question. Maybe we can use it as a starting point. Is anxiety, from your, from your clinical experience, is anxiety more common in men or women or even kids? I can't say one group suffers from it significantly more than other. I mean, in my years of seeing children, which was a number of years ago, uh, clearly children suffer from anxiety, whether it's separation anxiety or phobic anxiety about going to school or social anxiety in terms of fear of humiliation or embarrassment or exposure to uh, failure. You talk about a number of different symptoms like exposure to failure. It brings up the question about what are some of the more obvious symptoms of anxiety and perhaps what are some of the more, shall we say, lesser obvious signs of an anxiety disorder? Well, I mean, one of the things you always want to look for is avoidance. And avoidance can be very obvious when a child or an adult avoids responsibilities such as work or school or avoids going certain places that one would normally expect a person to go to. Sometimes the avoidance is subtle where a person may outright say to people or to themselves, well, I really don't care for that sort of thing, whether it be travel or being uh, mingling with people and socializing. But underneath the, the guise of I don't care for that is actually fear and it's become rationalized and, and kind of transformed into lack of interest but really very often when you scratch the surface it's fear so that's one aspect the other thing you will obviously want to look for other than avoidance is the experience of, of anxiety and fear whether it's cognitive meaning fearful thinking and excessive worry or physiologic symptoms, you know, somatic symptoms such as gastrointestinal complaints or just a a physical sense of agitation and anxiety. Is it more common, If again, if you can identify it, is it more common in young adults, older adults, or is it pretty much across the board? I'd say it's across the board. From my clinical experience, I see people of all ages. Um, anytime there's change uh, in life or anticipation of change, anxiety seems to kick in, whether it's change of schools or change of jobs or change going from one phase of life into the next phase, even in re- uh, anticipation of retirement or health issues. I mean, it, it, it's really uh, anxiety is an equal opportunity employer in terms of uh, the age. Is it chronic? Is it, for, is it a lifetime ailment? I would say so. When somebody develops significant level of worry, anticipatory anxiety, catastrophic thinking, they, it tends to become ingrained 
And once a person goes on guard, if you will, or becomes uh, anticipatory of all of the potential negative things in life, they, that's very hard for them to ever go off duty. A lot of times people will use the phrase, I have panic attacks, and other mm -hmm. times they'll say, I have anxiety attacks. Are there really differences? Yes. It's, some people uh, describe them, and they use the same terminology, whether it's an anxiety or a panic attack, they mean the same thing. But oftentimes, it's not the same thing. A panic attack tends to be a very sudden onset, discrete entity that has its very intense symptoms. Anxiety attacks very often, what people mean is that they're really very, very anxious. And sometimes they call it high anxiety, where they're just they're, their anxiety, their worry reaches intense levels, but they don't necessarily have a panic attack. So there's a lot of fear, and it's a lot of measurement how intense it is, whether we call it a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Yeah, I, I, I think that by and large, people, when they use the word panic attack, they're talking about intensity. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean clinically the same thing to us, but I think to, to most people, they'll d differentiate them on intensity. One of the things also that people tend to do is use the word phobias very loosely, and then there's a lot of anxiety, I guess, attached to the notion of a phobia. Separate for us, please, the difference between a phobia and an anxiety. If, if there is a separation that can be made. Well, the, 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 the experience when one is in, involved in a phobic situation or one is just generally anxious, the, the experience of the person may be very much the same in terms of how they feel physiologically and cognitively. But they're very different. When somebody is phobic, it's a very focused situation where if the person avoids that situation, they quickly feel better. They feel relieved. Anxiety is more of an internal state, and it's harder to avoid or get away from because it's not an external event so much as it is an internal so it's harder to avoid an anxiety disorder necessarily than a phobic disorder. Yeah, I mean, if you're phobic about going on airplanes, you can avoid airplanes and you'll feel fine. If you're an anxiety disorder, such as generalized anxiety disorder, I mean, you're, you're then trying to deal with avoidance of your thoughts. And generally speaking, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to avoid a thought. That's very interesting. So a phobia, you would avoid the event but anxiety, you avoid the thought. Did, did I say that too simplistically? Exactly. I mean, that's pretty much, that says it exactly. Uh, if you're phobic about something, it generally implies uh, an external uh, place or a person or a situation. You can be phobic about needles. You can be phobic about going to the doctor. You can be phobic about driving. But all you have to do to feel better in terms of anxiety is don't do it. But if you're a worrier, it's, it's not something that you can kind of step outside of your mind and now avoid. You, your thoughts are always coming. So if someone comes to you, let's just pick a, a simple one, a fear of flying. What would you do? How would you approach it? What, what's the therapy, so to speak? Well, with, for example, with fear of flying, there may be two parts to that. Some people are afraid of flying per se, the dangerous qualities of it that they may attribute. Other people, it's not so much that they're afraid of crashing, for instance. They're just afraid of the feelings that they get on an airplane. For instance, people who have panic attacks don't like going on an airplane because they're afraid of getting a panic attack on the airplane. So there may be two different types of uh, situations to deal with there. But let's say the person who's phobic about flying per se, part of it is, is uh, educating the person about why or how safe, how, how safe flying really is and that it's an irrational fear. 
some people don't really understand that flying is as safe as it is. So part of it is educational, and then the other part is giving the person techniques to help deal with their thinking so that they don't just white-knuckle the experience. I mean, if a person doesn't understand why it's safe, then they get on an airplane and they're basically enduring the, the, the experience and hoping that this is the time that they won't die. And they never really change their experience of it. So the cognitive therapy helps them change their actual experience of being on an airplane so that they don't dread it. And that's what's commonly referred to as cognitive behavioral therapy. That's exactly what that is. Now, we also, for those of us who don't do cognitive behavioral therapy like you do, we hear a lot about exposure. Let's get closer and closer or touch the snake or whatever it is. How complicated is it to develop a, a therapy protocol for exposure, say fear of flying, just to continue with the example? Well, I mean, the, the, the behavioral part of it isn't all that difficult if you've been able to change the cognitions. Once you're successful at getting a person to really understand something and why their thinking has been distorted and why their thinking is, is really working against them, then it's much easier for the person to go ahead and do the exposure. But unless they do the exposure, or they're, they're really not better. I sometimes use the analogy of what it must have been like in 1491 when people thought the world was flat, and then Christopher Columbus comes back and says, hey, I have, I have proof the world is round. Well, all of these uh, sailors must have felt, oh, that's great, the world is round, but I doubt many of them quickly ran over <laughs> to get into their ships and sailed to that edge. They, they, but until they saw the people do it, and then they gradually got closer and closer to that point that they considered the edge of the earth, they were still not going to be very calm about it. It was only through exposure and seeing that nothing happens that they really would believe that the earth is round. Elements of cognitive behavioral therapy are very educational. Yes. And learning an experience, it raises the question in my mind that if a child is exposed to parents who are fearful or who are always making something more dangerous than it is, these mm -hmm. poor people are going to end up with very nasty anxiety disorders. Typically. I mean, yeah, obviously some children seem to, no matter what, they, they, they're on the other side of the normal curve when it comes to fear. They just seem to not have that part of the brain that triggers a lot of fear. So sometimes parents who are fearful and then trying to instill fear in children can't do it. <laughs> so they find it frustrating. They're actually trying to instill fear and they can't get it in there. But typically, you have parents who are fearful will have offspring who biologically are more likely to be fearful and then mixing that with all of the uh, the fearful thinking and and the watch outs and the and the you know the instructions to be careful and how dangerous the world is you're you're setting up that you know it's like rubbing two sticks together and you're surely going to get a flame eventually what about shyness often you'll see people say oh i'm too shy to go to the dance and ask that girl to dance is, could that be an anxiety disorder i think typically Shyness is a fear. It's an anxiety, a fear of embarrassment and humiliation or rejection. Most people will describe themselves as shy, and they're really not shy once they get comfortable. So to me, you know, a guiding factor there is once if a person who describes themselves as shy is now outgoing and verbal and sociable once they're comfortable, then we're really dealing with fear and anxiety, not so much a a personality issue. So it's a sense of embarrassment, then, yeah. perhaps. Fear of embarrassment, fear of the unknown, fear of rejection, fear of not knowing to, what they'll, that they'll have the right thing to say or that they'll not say the right thing or be able to conduct a conversation for more than a few minutes. Those kinds of thoughts, irrational thoughts in there, create avoidance. And that 
is very much the same thing as quote-unquote shyness. There's also a notion, what's called social phobia, and this can be when people are even afraid to take a shirt that doesn't fit them and take it back to the mall mm -hmm. and return it. Can you comment a little bit about that type of phenomenon? Again, it's the fear of disapproval or rejection, embarrassment, humiliation, the, the, the almost reactive thought that to do this will create anxiety for me. And it's very quickly conditioned. You know, the stimulus quickly conditions the fear response. And like all people, we want to avoid painful feelings. And so if I don't go return this shirt, I feel better. If I go, I'm going to feel bad. And avoidance becomes, you know, very quickly ingrained in the person. And before much time, they become dependent on others to do these things for them. And they avoid doing themselves. And then they don't find out that it's really not such a bad thing and bad things hardly ever happen and it can be a very nasty habit that they fall into yeah hmm. for some people it, I, I guess it evolves into what we call the avoidant personality disorder can these conditions lead to alcohol and drug abuse social anxiety especially because there's nothing better for somebody in a in certain social situations than to have a drink and relax and now the fear just goes right out the window and that's whether it's uh, the adolescent in school or at social functions and parties or going out on a date or, you know, the corporate executive who develops anxiety about going in and giving a presentation in the boardroom. How would a, a parent begin to suspect that a child might be suffering from too much anxiety versus just being the normal sort of, shall we say, stuff that a kid goes through? I, I think you can measure it based on the degree of avoidance. You'll see ch uh, children in, in junior high or in high school get a, a lot of physical complaints, can't go to school today, I don't feel well, I have a stomach ache, and or, you know, they'll tend to, pref they'll, they'll prefer to, to spend time with adults rather than peers, because generally speaking, they won't worry about adults embarrassing them, but peers might, and avoidance behavior like that, and, and, and somatic complaints. I think those are the two key indicators. So belly aches and my arm hurts and that sort of thing right. are somatic complaints. Yes. It raises a very interesting question, and I think it's a conundrum for a lot of people because there's a confusion. When do you go see a psychologist and when do you go see a psychiatrist? That's a great question. <laughs> it's a hard one, too, Yeah, sometimes. it's definitely a hard one. I mean, I, I guess in in the past, I think it was probably more of a practical issue that needed to be addressed. I think now psychologists and psychiatrists are getting to the point where they're much more likely to interact with each other so that it's not, not as likely that if you go down one path, you'll never get to the other path. I mean, sometimes you go to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist will understand that this could be treated with cognitive behavior therapy and or, you know, with medication or not medication. And Vice versa, I think we're at the point in the profession where psychologists will know when to treat cognitively and or refer for medication. So I think now and even it will be less in the future, will that issue be as much of an issue? Well, that's encouraging because I know how confusing it is. I know that in 2005 there was this massive study called the Berlin CBT GAD study. Yes. And it reported marvelous improvements. So, you know, where do you go? And that's with CBT only, not mm -hmm. just with medications. Yes. Well, I, I think that most of the studies are showing that both methodologies are very effective. Some people, depending on their circumstances, are not capable of cognitive behavior therapy, either because of cost or location or time. 
or inclination, and, and those are people, if they can get the same benefits with medication, that's fine. Other people are aversive to medication or don't respond to medications and don't want medications, and those are the people who may be great with cognitive behavior therapy. And it's good because actually both methods work, and as you said, when they work conjointly, they work even better sometimes. Exactly. Which is really interesting. So the, if I can ask for what is sometimes known as the bottom line question, a lot of people suffer from this, a huge percentage of our population. Is treatment successful? I believe so. I mean, that's why I uh, have a kind of a great time treating anxiety disorders because there's nothing better than seeing people change and and being able to feel calmer and, and less fearful and, and start to engage with uh, the activities of life and develop the ability to just experience pleasure. I mean, you know, life is tough enough to uh, get through and find pleasure, but when fear gets in the way, it just makes it that much more difficult. And these techniques really, in a short-term basis, can make dramatic impact on change. That's good news, and it's a wonderful place to end this interview. Dr. Rosen, thank you so very much for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you for having me.